Welcome back to the show, folks. I really appreciate you being here with me today. You could be anywhere else in the world listening to anything, but you are here with me, and I thank you for that. I've got my coffee here, and I've got my computer pulled up, and we are ready to rock. So welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always. Uh, wanted to say thank you very much again for listening. That's the best way you can support us. Please like and share all of our posts on social media and like and share it in person verbally with your friends and family. That can be a big uh, starting point, a conversation starter uh, around these kind of topics. Direct them to our podcast, please. You can also donate, no obligation. This is a free podcast, but donations are welcome, and they help us uh, manage our equipment, our fees for services, and then for also um, bringing um, higher-profile guests on that may require travel expenses. So please donate to the show if you find value in it, and go check out our YouTube page. That's the Mind Ops YouTube page, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S YouTube, and check out mindops.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S.com. All right, guys, here's some Arturo Complex. Let's kick this thing off.
All right. How about some good news to brighten your day? I know that I can always use some. Pardon me while I adjust my microphone real quick. Okay, so today's good news story comes from the goodnewsnetwork.org and the name of the or the title of the article reads When a loving Brazilian street dog kept visiting a car dealership, they finally hired him as a salesman. Uh really funny story. Um it says uh, the first couple sentences of the article. What do you do when a stray dog shows up at your car dealership day after day? You give him a job, of course. So that's really cool. Uh, Emerson Mariano, a Hyundai Prime branch manager in Brazil, uh, noticed that this dog kept coming along um, to the car dealership every day to get fed, uh, literally showed up for work every single day. And... Um, started uh, getting comments from the customers who would come in there. And the the dealership has um, always embraced a pet-friendly attitude, but um, this took it one step forward. So they adopted this dog officially and gave the dog the title of official meter and greeter. Um, So cool to see um, the creativity of the human spirit to be able to give um, animals such as this you know, a job. I don't think he gets paid. Maybe in uh, milk bones or something. But, um, and I know it's not a human, but it does give me hope that uh, you know there are jobs out there for people. Um, if you're struggling to find work, um, you know there are jobs out there. Uh, and I don't know if this is true or not. Um, I mean, this this story seems to to portray it pretty accurately. But when I was a kid, you know, I used to hear this this quip about um, you know how to get a job that you want, and you just show up. Uh, every single day before you even apply for the job you just you just show up show up every every day um and no matter how many times you get rejected you just show up there every single day until you know whoever's hiring sees that you uh you know sees your work ethic sees you're on time <laughs> sees how bad you want the job so that was uh it was a piece of advice that I got when I was young. I never followed it because I went through the standard application process. But this dog shows us that just by showing up at a place every single day, good things can happen from that when, when you know people get to know you a little bit. So that's a good news story for today. Conversation with my mind. Um, so I've been on this little thing about you know what have you guys been reading lately? And if you're not reading something, I suggest that you're always you know have one to three books um, going at a time. Um, it seems like we consume so much of our information these days from uh, online sources, uh, social media, um, mass media news, things like that, and they're usually just really really short uh, quippets of news that don't cover the full context of an issue. And that's really why I like uh, reading books um, more so as a form of um, how I download my information as opposed to these these current sources that most people are drawn to these days. But I prefer books because um, you really get deep into one topic. You see, you know, a lot of the uh, the context surrounding the ideas. You get a lot of the history behind, you know, how the ideas evolved, things like that. And it's just so much more nutritious. So it's sort of like... um, you know, reading a book to me is like eating a healthy, well-balanced meal, um, you know, with all the all the macronutrients, everything that you need to sustain life and uh, vitality. Whereas consuming information from the media stream, from um, 
major news media sources from social media, from things like that, is sort of like getting your fast food version of information where you only get to download uh, a minimal amount of nutrients from that information. So um, I suggest you guys go out and read. Uh, so this section is on, you know, what have you been reading recently? And for me, um, I just finished this great book called A Brief History of Everything by Ken Wilber. And uh, it was just phenomenal. Um, I had no idea what I got, was getting into when I started the book. I thought that uh, a brief history of everything would be like a historical account of um, human history uh, and events and things like that. But it, you know, and that was in the book. But really, it was about the evolution of human consciousness over the epochs, over time. Um, over human history and the different stages that we sort of go through and where we are now and where we can look forward to going if we make some correct decisions um, in our uh, current predicaments. So I wanted to read you uh, a few little segments, and um, these are all um, earmarked things that I have in the book. And um, as I read them to you, you'll sort of see my line of thinking here. So I was sort of tracing the historical evolution of um, uh, consciousness theory through through the ages and um, just found this uh, timeline to be fascinating um, to look at from an outsider's perspective, like 2020 hindsight, seeing like, oh, so that's how that evolved into that and that evolved into that. And uh, it really gives you a good sense of where we are and how we got here. So I will digress into reading these, okay? So we're talking about a gentleman named Schelling here. And it says, rather he maintained, this is Schelling, we have to go forward beyond reason in order to discover what mind and nature are both simply different movements of one absolute spirit, a spirit that manifests itself in its own successive stages of unfolding. As Schelling's colleague Hegel would soon put it, spirit is not one apart from many, but the very process of the one expressing itself through the many. It is infinite activity expressing itself in the process of development itself. Or as we would say now, spirit expresses itself in the entire process of evolution. Except, of course, we moderns, committed to a descended grid, have no higher stages of evolution beyond reason, and we interpret the entire great chain in merely empirical and natural terms, which is precisely why we can't understand or explain the self-transcending drive of this evolution that has nonetheless become our modern god. Thus for Schelling, and for his friend and student Hegel, spirit goes out of itself to produce objective nature awakens to itself in subjective mind, and then recovers itself in pure non-dual awareness, where subject and object are one pure immediacy that unifies both nature and mind in realized spirit. And so, spirit knows itself objectively as nature, knows itself subjectively as mind, and knows itself absolutely as spirit, the source, the summit, and the eros of the entire sequence. Schelling's key insight was that the spirit that is realized in a conscious fashion in the supreme identity is in fact the spirit that was present all along as the entire process of evolution itself. All of spirit, so to speak, is present at every stage as the process of unfolding itself. 
But at each stage, spirit unfolds more of itself, realizes more of itself, and thus moves from slumber in nature to awakening in mind to final realization as spirit itself. But the spirit that is realized is the same spirit that was present all along as the entire process of its own awakening. And so the horrifying truth of the modern condition slowly dawns. The hatred of transcendence is the way the flatland grid reproduces itself in the consciousness of those it is destroying. As always, the new and higher center of gravity makes possible but does not guarantee the availability of the higher or deeper structures to its individual citizens. And as a society's center of gravity puts on more and more weight, there are more and more individuals who can be left behind, marginalized, excluded from their own intrinsic unfolding, disadvantaged in the cruelest way of all, in their own interior consciousness, value, and worth. Wow. Just profound. Um, I really like those excerpts from that, that book. So, what are you guys reading today? Uh, if you're not reading anything... Go pick up a book on something that you've been interested in uh, for a long time. Um, you'd be inter- you'd be uh, amazed at how much uh, more quickly your life story evolves and unfolds right in front of you through the magic of um, you know pouring yourself into some literature. So check that out. All right, today's guest, very special friend of mine, Alyssa Gursky. She's an art therapist, psychedelic therapist, a public speaker, and an artist. Uh, She currently uh, does ketamine therapy and cannabis-assisted therapy um, and recently just moved to Oregon. So this this conversation was recorded right before she moved. So now she's up in the Oregon area, so look her up. Um, You guys can reach out to her at psychedelicarttherapy at gmail.com. I'll also put that in the description um, for the podcast. So go reach out to her if you have, uh, more questions. Okay. Um, we go over a lot of stuff today in this podcast, really cool things. Um, you know, everything from COVID to black lives matter to, uh, her experience at Naropa, uh, and Colorado experiences, uh, Buddhist psychology, um, the immersive art of Meow Wolf, you know, we go into a lot of different things, uh, the path of the Bodhisattva, healthy skepticism, all sorts of cool stuff. So stick around for the show. And uh, without further ado, let's get into it. conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shayla Master. We're here for episode number 83. Very special guest, Alyssa Gursky. Did I say that right? You sure did. Okay, perfect. Sometimes I miss uh, 
missay guest names and I have to go back and I'm always like, you know, hitting myself on the head, like, come on, you should have just asked that before you started the show. Um, you got it. But I'm glad that you're here. Thank you for coming. Yeah, it's a privilege to be here. Um, so the first question is always the same to all my guests. And that is, um, you know, the, the podcast is called Conversations with the Mind. And I'm wondering when you hear that phrase or that um, bundle of words, what sort of comes to mind? Um, what what uh, memories or, or visions or imagery comes to mind when you hear the phrase Conversations with the Mind? Mm. As, as a visual person, I really appreciate the, the vast net for which you're allowing me to answer that. Um, it immediately reminds me of the brave introspection that is gifted to us through non-ordinary state work. Um, yeah, I've, I've been somebody who's been practicing meditation for about seven years now. And to have conversations with the mind, it feels like the... I think Jung calls it axis mundi, like where heaven meets earth, where conscious meets unconscious. Like that, that meeting point is the, the mental image that comes to me. Like being able to have all parts communicate or have parts communicate that aren't necessarily available in all waking consciousness. <laughs> I love how you, um, you first talk about introspection, right? And we, I mean, I think it's, quite a unique ability um, that we as human beings, I think, have to be able to, I mean, it's this amazing tool, right? This introspective lens that we can somehow take. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's probably a couple animal species out there that have some sort of self-reflection, but not to yeah. the extent maybe that we do or not the same type that we do. Um, but that's interesting, right? And we can get that a lot through non-ordinary states, but I think it's a gift that we all have in everyday life too, right? It's this gift of really? introspection, but how many people really, really lean into that and really take advantage of, of that tool? I think that, you know, and myself included, uh, um, especially in the past, but even recently, like I'll find myself at times where, um, you know, some thought will come up and I'll just, uh, you know, there'll be a, a very distinct choice like, oh, you can explore that further or you can just like minimize it and forget about it. Just go on with your day. Right. And so I think a lot of us experience that um, sort of that choice point between yeah. um, do we take the leap into introspection because it can be really scary or do we just sweep it under the rug and go about our daily existence. Right. And sometimes that choice isn't always conscious. Sometimes we're not always aware that we've turned it away from ourselves until we've been turned away for so long. So it's, it's interesting that you, what you're saying is that the choice does come up fairly frequently. We are always making the decision, am I in intimacy with self or am I dissociating? Am I doing something else? And um, yeah, I, I really appreciate that you're causing me to reflect on the fact that it is a conscious choice to be in conversation with the mind and the self. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I I think I've I think I've gained the most important personal lessons about myself and about relationships with others and relationship with nature from that very thing. From taking the time to slow down and you know question myself, you know, que ask myself questions and really um, question my values, my beliefs, my morals. Put those all on the table and really examine which ones are useful and which ones are not. Um, those have been some of the most fruitful, I guess, um, opportunities that I've been afforded. 
Um, you you mentioned um, this Jungian concept. What was the concept again? Oh, there's my there's my co-host. <laughs> so happy that they're joining us. Mm-hmm. Um, I use the term axis mundi. So that's um, I don't remember the translation of it. Um, I hope I'm getting this right, but that's where um, heaven meets earth. There's like Central American mythology around a tree. It's called the Saba tree. It's a huge tree. It's gorgeous. A bit of a tangent from anything too psychedelic, but um, I was backpacking in Central America and remember learning that there's this mythology that this tree is so sacred because it's where heaven meets earth due to its size. So I'm always sort of, um, especially in my work as a therapist, always looking for that. I'm seeing myself doing this with my hands while I'm talking. This meeting point, you know, this um, this axis point of where unconscious just meets the conscious, where ordinary just meets the non-ordinary. Especially um, going to non-ordinary state work, people so often think that there is this, um, it's the most important to be fully in the medicine and fully in the experience. And as I become a... Sorry, the, the UPS guy just pulled around the corner. It's okay. <laughs> as, luckily I'm able to keep my train of thought, um, as, as I move into medicine work in the space of like a legal above ground psychedelic therapist, I'm seeing so much importance in that threshold of where we're going back into non-ordinary life, where we are going back into the conscious mind. So that's why I love that term. Like uh, basically my understanding is that it means where heaven meets earth, where we meet um, body when, meets spirit. When you described it, um, what came to my mind was uh, the Buddhist concept of uh, super consciousness. Um, sort of, I, I've heard uh, quite a few monks talk about it. You know, it's that point you know, when we all lay down at night and you feel that twitch, right? You feel that twitch right before you fall asleep. And then it's right? Right. Yeah. And then it's yeah. that time between that twitch and the moment you fall asleep into the unconscious, that that's some higher level of, of uh, yeah. access points to be able to really access, you know, the deep uh, rooted things. Um, and, did you, did, I mean, I know you went to Naropa. Did you guys talk about um, super consciousness or that, that little sliver of opportunity that we all have? Only so much so. Yeah, I do have two degrees from Naropa University. Um, most of the work that I did was centered around transpersonal and contemplative psychology. So how to take practices and the Dharma and apply it to our Western suffering. So I we didn't get to or coming out of that what feels like a seven-year-long psychedelic experience at Naropa coming out of that um I don't remember too much esoteric philosophy of what they believe about that like liminal space that like bardo space in between being awake and being asleep but yeah I don't I don't know too much about it yeah, I'm fam- familiar with it conceptually in other theoretical frameworks, but yeah. yeah I've only picked up um, most of my Buddhist knowledge is just from reading Buddhist texts and uh, reading things on my own. I did take a couple um, Buddhism classes in my undergraduate years, um, a couple of eclectic spirituality classes and some shamanism classes. Um, but most of my understanding comes from directly from you know, writers from that tradition. Um, yeah. And I, I was at one point looking at going to Naropa for the contemplative psychotherapy program. 
Um, mm -hmm. Really impressed with, you know, the, the uh, well, really impressed with Naropa as a whole, with the curriculum, with um, how they integrate that introspection really heavily into their uh, program. I oh, think yeah. Such, a, such an important piece of any education, and it's a shame that the Western model doesn't adopt that a little bit more. But I was wondering if you could just talk to the audience a little bit, and myself too, a little bit about what was your experience at Naropa like? Um, you know, where did you come from before that? And was it, was it a culture shock? I've heard some people on that initial meditation retreat, you know, kind of go a little crazy and just be like, I can't do this anymore. So what was your experience like? That's a great question, especially because I'm very fresh out of it. Mm -hmm. um, I, so I decided to study art therapy when I was 16. Um, so I went right from high school to college and was living on Long Island where I'm born and raised. And I was not satisfied with the culture around me. My body was craving a bit more of the, um, the transpersonal lens now that I could put language to it. I was struggling with a lot of depression at the time, a lot of social anxiety and a lot of um, what I understand now is body dysmorphia. And the culture was pretty, um, pretty supportive in me instilling those beliefs. And a friend of mine, which it actually leads into a lot of psychedelic experiences, a friend of mine at the time when I was living in New York studying art therapy had said, hey, have you heard of Naropa? And also, by the way, a separate friend at the same time is saying, have you ever tried mushrooms? Like, maybe that would help your depression. So I got introduced to meditation and Naropa and psychedelics all around the age of 16, 17, and my whole world cracked open. Um, I decided that I was going to leave my university, Long Island University at the time, and I was applying to NYU or Naropa. My mom was like, like, I love you. You're applying to a really elite school. You might want to have a backup. So I was like, you know, worst case scenario, I'll move out to Boulder and I'll just like take a bunch of acid and meditate. My life will be so great. <laughs> and I just had this like pipe dream of it. And um, I ended up getting accepted into both schools. And I decided that I was going to one, try mushrooms and two, that I was going to let myself make art and um, make this decision. So I, I was about, yeah, 16 or 17 and I took psilocybin for the first time and I started drawing and I had this acceptance from both universities and I just kept drawing mountains. And that was my sign that like, go to Boulder, just see what it's about. I was halfway through my degree. I figured if I hated it, if it was too woo woo, because even though I am a deeply spiritual person, I'm also like a second generation New York City Jew. So there's a part of me that's like, this is bullshit. What's actually happening? Like the neurotic, I need to know what's happening was still there, even though I was being um, entranced by this um, mystical and contemplative environment. So I was unhappy. I wanted to make changes in my life. I started a devotional relationship with both psychedelics and meditation. I moved out here and everything it was like doors opened. That's how I knew that this path was for me and that I felt safe and like it was mine to take. It was a successful bid for power because everything opened up with relative ease once I got here. I moved here in January and that following April or May, I got involved with the um, MDMA study. So the Boulder site 
that uses the MAPS study that uses MDMA to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. And I served as a night attendant for about five years while I completed both my undergraduate and my master's. Um, but the, the degree specifically, um, people describe it as Hogwarts. That's not very far off. It was very strange going from a university that was, you need math credits, you need science credits, this like really traditional Bachelor of Science degree to something where my emotional experience was welcome in the classroom. And we sat on cushions and it was a culture shock, but um, yeah, my first meditation retreat actually entering into a sober, non-ordinary state um, changed me. And that's a bit of my backstory. I think Naropa is a bit of a chaotic place, a really beautiful place. Um, my future plans are really instilled within theoretical development. So that being psychedelic therapy and art therapy, me knowing that both of these are really successful modalities. And I, in, you know, in ceremony, in journaling, I frequently get the message that I'm trained in both because I'm supposed to synthesize both. So yeah, Naropa was a perfect place to learn transpersonal philosophy. You know, at the beginning of Naropa, Ram Dass, Baba Ram Dass taught one of the original lectures at Naropa's first year. And Stanislav Grof gave lectures. Alex Gray has taught art classes here at some point. Like, there have been so many major lineage holders who have touched the ground for which I have learned. And being someone who lineage is so important for, Naropa is beautiful and made me an excellent practitioner but I'm constantly being like oh what are these like mainstream therapy skills that I should learn CBT that sounds interesting <laughs> proper paperwork like not dressing like a hippie let's talk about that those are skills that I'm supplementing with but it did give me a really beautiful ground in I mean healing so much of myself and then taking on the identity as a co-adventurer in the psyche for my future clients. And really um, a topic that I feel is we can't not address is what our, our current political climate. Um, being able to address my own internalized white supremacy, being able to in look at how, you know, um, patriarchal structure affects me as a queer woman, like even coming out to myself as queer, even being able to write a paper on how ethical non-monogamy is very important to me. All of these parts of myself not only got space at Naropa, but I was able to challenge. I just rambled for a while, but lots oh, of good, good, lots of chaotic and lots of good. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, most people I talk to <laughs> about Naropa who don't know uh, much about Naropa just think it's, you know, a school for hippies or, you know, that there's some Buddhism mixed in there too, but really, you know, <laughs> the curriculum is, is quite intense. And you, know, you talk about this whole, such an important part, in my opinion, for, for us as um, facilitators of healing in practice, that <laughs> we've done the work on ourselves first, you know, or that we are continuing yep. to do the work on ourselves. And uh, I can remember, you know, I went to see you Boulder for my undergrad, um, Still, you know, a, a Western-based uh, school system, but entrenched in this, you know, the Boulder bubble, which we all, you know, having lived there, you you know how laid back yeah. and nice it is, right? Um, it's a bubble. It is. 
Um, but you know, I in my uh, undergrad, I didn't get. There was no mandatory um, self exploration. It was all about what do you do for the patient? What do you do for the client? Mm -hmm. What are the theories that we need to know? How do you run experiments? You know, these kind of things. Um, I had to speak that out a lot for myself in undergrad. You know, um, I'm, I was finding myself at the time feeling really lost, deep in alcoholism, all sorts mm -hmm. of things like that. And no one of my professors or classmates was saying like, hey, maybe you should go try out therapy. Maybe you should go work on some things if you're going to be helping others, right? So I had to seek that yeah. out for myself. And unfortunately, I made a lot of mistakes and I hurt myself and relationships um, before I finally found, you know, my own path to self-exploration and self-discovery. And mm -hmm. it was with that component, I think, that was so much more important to me than the theories I was learning in school, right? The whole reason why I wanted to get into psychology in the first place was to understand myself better, but they weren't exactly. teaching me how to do that. They were teaching me how to understand behaviors of others and thought patterns of yeah. others. And so this piece of like, I love that Naropa emphasizes that. And, um, you know, I was wondering if, if you could speak a little bit more to that process for you. Totally. Um, I mean, you mentioned all these things that, that you learned about yourself and you seem so much more, um, you speak like you're so much more grounded now than you were when you started. I'm wondering yeah. if, you, if you could speak <laughs> to that process. In my experience, like the, I go in with lots of questions, but every time I go self-exploring, I always come out with even more, with more questions. questions. Yeah. Yep. It's a never ending process. It would be so boring if we ran out of questions. So boring if we had all the answers. <laughs> yeah, so just for some perspective, I moved to Boulder, had bright blue hair. I loved Tipper. Like, I <laughs> I was what, what you would call a wook. I still have a bit of it in me. But, um, yeah, so I, I came pretty ungrounded and pretty interested. But I remember sitting down at Naropa in um, the orientation class. And one of the first articles we read is on the topic of spiritual materialism, which um, for those who are unfamiliar, um, Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche, the founder of Naropa University, talks about um, how spiritual materialism is a concept that, you know, like Mala, for example, is something that somebody can just wear and then is assumed to have a spiritual essence. Like there's... Um, instead of actually practicing with um, like objects being used as a display and as a way to actually avoid um, spiritual work. So spiritual bypassing, spiritual materialism are topics that are super upfront in Europa. Like, like a, are you- It's like a um, uh, common language, like a poser, right? Someone who, yeah. who wears the clothes, but doesn't practice. Yeah, exactly. And like, it's, it's interesting because I totally caught myself in that at first. And I was so grateful that those discussions were happening. And then there's that choice of, well, do you actually now want to move through that threshold and sit on the spiritual path? And the spiritual path is really painful. And it consists of a lot of self-exploration. Um, for me, I feel that a lot of grounding came from being and doing. So like being in shadow and then undoing and making mistakes and being able to use the tools that I'm learning through um, mindfulness, mindfulness, like having to meditate at the beginning of each class 
was so profound. Like to actually have a forced meditation practice that once semesters ended, I it was it was abnormal if I didn't sit. And especially turning towards psychedelic work when we have these two three hour therapy sessions, it's so much easier for me to drop in because of that ritual. Um, but the tools that I learned, so like meditation and concepts such as impermanence, you know, we are so sitting in impermanence right now and being able to identify that, yes, you are alive, therefore you suffer. And being able to celebrate that part of aliveness, these like really core Buddhist principles, being able to bring those into my messy Western life, like being able to catch myself in you know a codependent partnership or unhappy work dynamics and I'm not speaking up for myself like all of these big struggles that I went through as I was transitioning from like a confused New Yorker who vaguely knew she liked psychedelics vaguely knew she liked meditating and actually stepping into intimacy with myself and using those tools in action so catching myself being messy and hurtful and realizing, oh, yeah, I'm suffering because I'm attached. I'm suffering because, and the Dharma offering a really beautiful stepping stone for, and you're unlearning how to, how, like, I, I'll never be outside of Western culture. I'll never not be. Like, sure, I have probably said four times this week alone, no exaggeration, that I'd love to shave my head and move to Thailand. But that's not what I'm doing. Like, I'm here to, to sit in my discomfort. Like, right now especially, I feel that my mindfulness practice and the gifts of Naropa um, have so deeply been, how do I hold the idea of white supremacy? How do I hold the idea of living in the city of Denver while there are protests happening? I could so easily shut my door. Like, I live in a neighborhood of low socioeconomic status. And could easily shut my door, lock myself in my nice room with my hue lights and meditate and listen to East Forest and pretend that good vibes, everything's okay. But um, my, my mindfulness practice and really my art practice has been so right now profoundly supportive in sitting with that suffering and identifying places where it's easy for me to turn away and not calling myself an ally because allyship I've been learning is a verb and it isn't something that I can claim. So I'm going on a bit of a tangent there because I'm I'm feeling really aware of the privilege of even being on this platform, getting to communicate about these topics. And yeah, um, so I, I think my journey at Naropa has been a lot of learning these tools and realizing that as I'm practicing these tools at a collegiate level, when um, strife comes up in real life, it's easier to step in and say, wait, I actually can regulate myself. I actually know that I could take space and recognize that like this suffering is very important or that I'm holding an attachment to being a good person. And yeah, I think I, I think that <laughs> answered your question a little bit and also rambled a little bit. Yeah. Um, and if you're comfortable, I think that that's a perfect segue to drop um, a little deeper into, you know, what's going on right now in the world. Um, mm -hmm. the climate, right? Uh, you know, not just Black Lives Matter, but 
uh, looting and, and people protesting all sorts of things, you know, police violence, and then we're still amidst the COVID um, pandemic. And right. I know for me, um, I really try and apply um, Buddhist philosophy as I understand it as much as possible in every situation in my life. Um, and I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about Buddhist philosophy as you've learned it at Naropa um, and how you're sort of utilizing it in these days to, to navigate. You talked about, you know, how you could take what you learned and, and spiritually bypass it and sit in your room and meditate. And certainly some people would argue that, yeah, that's what monks do all the time when they go up into the caves to meditate for many decades, you know, um, is to escape from, from all this stuff so that they can really focus on themselves and the spirituality piece. Um, but for me, you know, growing up in the West, <clears throat> I have this immediate reaction to some of the things going on, like um, got to take action, got to do something about this. Uh, this is wrong. Um, you know, I have those pulls for sure. But then my Buddhist teachings tell me to like whoa whoa slow down like um you know wrong action is just as bad sometimes as non-action so you need to make sure that you're making correct wise choices with what you're doing and you know also trying to you know i've, I've come up against this a couple times so um i'm a proponent of buddhism i like to talk about it with my friends and I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me and said, like, well, what, what do you think about those people starving in Africa or, or um, you know, something like that? And my perspective has always been that, you know, we're born into or we, ch we partially choose in the Bardo. We choose what our life is going to be like. We choose what our sufferings are going to be uh, yeah. because they're meant to teach us certain things that we need to learn before we can uh, move on to the next stage or whatever. And. Um, so my, my perspective is that, you know, I was born in the United States as a white male for a reason. Um, I don't know what that entire reason is, um, but I'm learning that too, right? Ty tearing down my own um, white privilege and understanding that I need to use whatever privilege um, I'm afforded to help others with it. Um, but also, you know, there's this piece where, you know, I'm feeling... Okay, so I met this guy in Thailand. He was from Nepal, and he was uh, he made himself very successful, very successful businessman. He made suits, and he made me a few suits while I was in uh, Thailand. Very beautiful. Um, and he said, I'm from a very poor village in Nepal, uh, Nepal and um, I asked him, you know, what, what do you think about your place in the universe being born where you were with that sort of um, – socioeconomic status and I loved his answer because someone being from a Buddhist tradition born into poverty told me that that was my karma and he had a big smile on his face he he had no um bitter resentful feelings about it he was just like that's just where I was born I must have done something bad in a past life and that's you know what I had to work out of but look what I did with it you know and so part of me in my, um, you know, looking around at what's going on with COVID and Black Lives Matter, like part of my Buddhist teaching or understanding tells me that this is how it's supposed to be. This is how it has always supposed to be. This is how we are changing things. All the change that's happening right now is happening exactly the way, um, you know, maybe it was destined to in the simulation or whatever. Um, yeah. 
but also feeling like simulation vibes <laughs> right but also feeling like a little disconnect too like um like i'm not i don't know what do, what do you think how do you how do we apply buddhist philosophy to help us not just cope with what's going on but help us to understand it on a on a deeper metaphysical level um beyond you know the things that were that are obvious right we need to make changes in our socio-political yeah. arenas in this 3d reality but beyond that like what does our buddhist philosophy teach us about this yeah immediately what comes up for me is so simple it is so simple just simply as a white woman so like looking at my intersectionality white queer jewish you know like i i hold more privilege than i do um than i than i do not mm -hmm. and there's something for me in this time of being able to catch my nervous system and i think that sometimes buddhist philosophy can be exclusive to those who aren't as privy so though though i i'm i'm really holding the idea of you know karmic suffering and and different levels of being like are we actually in the human realm are we in the hungry ghost realm like there are a lot of ways we could pathologize through a buddhist lens what is happening and and the simplicity that is arising for me as you're speaking is the power of meditation the power of sitting and being able to regulate and noting that the the path of the path of a bodhisattva the path of being of service is so deeply steeped in 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 my own regulation you know like to, to bring in to actually bring in buddhist philosophy a practice that works for me and that i have sat pretty devotionally with over the last four or five years is known as Tonglen or it's known as Metta, loving kindness. And it's a practice of being able to breathe in suffering, which is so counterintuitive and being able to breathe out my wellness, trusting like um, the Shambhala tradition, which is a, you know, Westernized Tibetan Buddhist tradition says that so much of like, we are basically good. At my core, I am basically good. Beyond my biographical information, beyond all of the relationships I fucked up, beyond everything, my, my pathology, I am basically good. Which is much and, different than Western, um, because Western says you're born yeah. with original sin, right? That you need to make yep. up. You need to make up the ledger in order to get into the club. Mm-hmm. And I'm basically good. And from my basic goodness, I can breathe in suffering. So applying that to something like the Black Lives Matter movement and recognizing that like as a white woman, like I, being able to breathe in that suffering and being able to recognize where I am resistant to, but, but that's not me, but I, I'm a therapist. And I want to offer low service fees and I want to do all these things. Like, aren't I, aren't I good? It's like, no, no, you still have to breathe in the suffering of others because you have that privilege because of the, you know, lack of melanin in my skin. That's not something I just, that I decided. So yeah, the piece of Buddhist philosophy that comes through 
in relation to this time is recognizing that I have I have to breathe in the suffering of others. My job right now is I'm I'm, I'm really tracking my social media presence, and I'm I was really um, wanting to support the uh, a campaign that was moving around the amplified mel- melanated voices. I, I might be butchering that name. I hope I'm not, but. Um, anyways, being able to quiet my voice on social media and being able to share amplifying the voice of black people. And through that, oh oh gosh, through that, there's this piece of sharing content, but not wanting to be a performative ally, wanting to be supportive but not wanting to be like, look, I'm sharing stuff on social media, like really taking the time to stay in my window of tolerance of my nervous system. So that way, you know, like currently I'm finishing up an internship working um, at an addiction recovery center and I am about to move across the country. So there are all of these huge things in my life that I can only give so much of, and there's privilege. I only can give so much of my resource to learning from people of color right now and that is a privilege so being able to sit with the suffering of others and like have that be devotional i think has been really big in me saying it's okay if you fuck up and here is this gorgeous description that somebody made like an adorable instagram infographic of how to sit with how to repair you know and how to not just be a performative ally but actually sitting down each day and being like okay i'm gonna practice tonglen and then I'm going to spend 40 minutes um, looking up where I can donate some money to or where I can call or send emails. That's something that's been really easy for me right now because protesting is inaccessible. One, because I'm immunocompromised and two, because I see clients in person. So um, that risk profile, protesting is not something I could do, but calling representatives at a state and national level, send me emails. Um, amplifying voices of black people um, has been and not wanting to be performative about it not wanting to be like look everybody I've donated money or look at all these calls I've made but I'm just trying to um, really honor the like the, the Buddhist lineage that's come before me and like I sit and this is my service and this is what I'm supposed to do yeah, I think um, the Buddhist philosophy that comes through me the most at this time, um, and it's super basic, right? <laughs> Which is um, generating compassion for everything, yeah. all beings, including myself. Generating compassion for the people suffering, suffering for the police, um, you know, generating compassion for the virus itself, you know, everything. Yeah generating compassion for the things that we feel we're being plagued by right now. Um, And that's really been helping me open doors, you know, sort of within myself to, to, I don't know, connect a little bit more. Like I love what you were talking about when you said taking on the suffering of others or feeling it right. And I'd read about that concept in Buddhist philosophy. Um, before but to me it had always seemed like something that would be unattainable you know i'm just one person i'm just one consciousness how could i possibly feel the suffering of all and um it was probably one of the most profound altered states experiences that i had i think um 
I, I think it was a ketamine experience um, mm. in which I disassociated from my body um, and found myself in this, you know, in the field, um, you know, the metaphysical field. And I didn't have a body. I didn't, I just had an essence, but I was still, I still had a, you know, an inner dialogue. I could still communicate with my, with my uh, consciousness and, and sort of ask questions. And um, that question came across my mind, you know, um, at first I, I, you know, got into some shadow work and I was feeling my own suffering. Right. So I connected to, what does it feel like as Shane or, or as this spiritual being to suffer through many lifetimes and to suffer in this lifetime the way I have? And I really connected with that. I bawled my eyes out. I can remember that. And then I opened myself up to the next question, right? Which is, what does the suffering of others feel like? What does the suffering of all others feel like? Not just people, yeah. but animals and the planet and everything in the universe that suffers, because we all do. And immediately, as soon as I asked the question, I was flooded with the most intense amount of felt suffering my psyche has ever felt. Um, I had images of genocides. I had images of, um, you know, little kids being forced to kill their parents and, you know, terrible, terrible things in human history and world history. And I really feel like I got to sit with that feeling of all suffering of all beings at one time, you know, uh, I don't know how long it lasted, but um, when I came out of that feeling, I didn't feel drained like I thought I would, right? When we feel our own suffering, I, I often feel like really drained after I let it all out. But instead, like after feeling all the suffering, I came out of that with this greater appreciation of others. And I was like, so energized to come out of that experience, um, having felt this con having actually experienced this concept that I read about and thought was impossible. And now, you know, I emerged from it just feeling like, Oh my God, there's so much pain, so much suffering out there. I have to do everything I can to reduce as much as I within my power on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, and that keeps me in check every single day when I catch myself, you know, about to say a hurtful comment or about to say something or act in a way I catch myself and I'm like, no, I, I can't cause suffering uh, anymore. There's, there's too much already. Yeah. Shane, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's the, uh, I mean, the word compassion literally means to suffer with conflict literally means like to, to suffer with, you know? So how do you teach, uh, how would you teach like, a, I don't know, to like one of your more Western based friends, like how would you tell them if they came to you and they're like, hey, I want to learn how to be more compassionate. I want to be able to feel this pain, but I just can't connect to oh. what's going on because I just don't live in it. How would you um, encourage that exploration? gotta say i am loving this i love getting to integrate buddhism i am so on on podcast platforms usually talking about art and psychedelics and i just so appreciate the wisdom that you're drawing out and the ways you're making my mind turn I'm very very appreciative of it so how would i talk to my western friends about how to sit with if they were interested in this in so the, the spiritual part of it or like how to engage with the suffering of others? 
Um, let's start with how to engage with the suffering, because I feel like a lot of the listeners out there haven't quite found their spiritual self yet, and that's why they yeah. listen, is they're trying, they're seekers, right? We're all seekers. Totally. Um, so let's start with that, with, with someone without a spiritual background, how can, what's something practical that they could do to, mm. to help them connect with the plight of others? Yeah. Where my mind immediately goes is reflecting on the eight limbs of yoga. Mm. So there, there are different yogic paths, and I don't remember all eight off the top of my head, but um, they all are like different traits. I, a yoga class, like a yoga philosophy class was a part of my degree, but this is like six years ago, so I'm really reaching back in there. Um, so there's... So bhakti, for example, bhakti is um, a yogic path that I personally really connect with, which is the path of devotion. I'm just a person who, you know, if cleaning my space is an act of devotion, like loving, loving fully and being able to live devotionally, like is how I connect with divine. Being of service is a way to connect with divine. Um, and there's different yogic paths. I know. So without being able to name them off the top of my head. I guess I'm talking about them. So, being able to touch in with what is their individual gift, I think would be in essence where I'm going with that metaphor. So I don't think limbs of yoga is the right word, so. That's such a hard one too like so many um, people are seeking for their meaning and purpose right like yeah that's like the big question i don't know why i'm blanking on what, what this is called right now but i'll just get to the essence of what i'm trying to say um there what's what is someone's style uh, is somebody like does somebody have financial resources and giving being philanthropic is how they can feel of service is somebody like me where physically giving their labor is what makes them feel empowered. Like I, I'm really interested in the intersection of somebody's gift and what they're already doing and how that can be pushed a step further into how to serve the collective, if that makes sense. So yeah, totally. if, if somebody's an author, if they have a platform, how to use like an influencer platform, or if you're a musician, how to write music that's inspired by this. Like I have a dear friend who, he has been writing albums inspired by nature for a, a good long time. Secret Gardens, you should check them out on Spotify. But he was putting out a t-shirt in this time and putting out music in this time and said, I, I ethically have to, um, I have to like 100% of the proceeds of the t-shirt he then donated. He still is wanting to put his essence out there. He's doing what he's put on this earth to do, which is make music, which is, be inspired and in awe by the world and transmute that into music, which other people can experience. And to use his pre-existing gift to be of service feels, um, feels like a beautiful example and just ways that I already see people in my community getting on this path without even trying. So people like that inspire me. Um, yeah, like I'm saying, what you're already good at, what is the path that you're already intuitively walking on and how can you define it and make it conscious? Like we were saying before, like what are you already unconsciously doing and how can you consciously make it to, um, 
be a way to connect closer to the collective, to the divine, to be of service. Yeah, that's one of my favorite ideas is, um, and sort of a core value that I hold is that whatever the word legacy means in our culture, my yeah. greatest desire, my what I want to do with my life is I want to add more than I take from this reality. You know, I want to add more positivity than I take negatively from from this reality. And I love the way you go about it, you know, engaging. What are you currently doing? And what popped in my head was, you know, me and this podcast, you know, I'm doing this anyway because I love to talk to people. I love to understand different perspectives, but this is a transpersonal process itself, you know. Um, I'm talking to you, you're teaching me about yourself, but at the same time, I'm going in myself as you're talking to, to pull things back out of my filing cabinet and re-examine them and then refile them in a new file. You know, it's this transpersonal process where I'm growing, I'm growing so much and my hope is that, you know, I use this platform to, um, to speak my mind and especially talk about things that I'm struggling with, right. With like um, white privilege and things like that. And, and telling the audience, like, what is my process going through this? Because I think a lot of us are lost out there and I'm lost myself. And so that's my hope is that, you know, we can figure this thing out sort of together. I don't think we all, I don't think any one of us has all the answers, but I think collectively we probably do. Um, we just need to, you know, like you said, like start talking about these things. Um, yeah. You mentioned something earlier and I, I have sort of an off the, off the cuff uh, question for you. So you said, <laughs> you said what, if, um, <clears throat> what if this realm that we're living in right now is like the hungry ghost realm, right? And uh, for those listeners, we're talking about the, the karmic wheel of life. Um, there's all these different realms in Buddhist philosophy that you could be born into. And we are born into many hundreds, thousands of times, um, including God realms and hell realms and all these things. Um, so the hungry ghost realm is like this realm where we're, we're sort of addicts, you know, where I think the, the visual was uh, distended stomachs, but with uh, the throat the size of like a, a, a straw, right? So you can't hardly take in the sustenance that you crave so much. That's the hungry ghost. And that's what addiction is to its core. Um, but here's my question for you is um, I've heard a lot of people saying with regards to this particular Buddhist philosophy, you know, we're living in the hell realm right now, but what if, this is really, what if this is the heaven realm? What if this is the realm um, that we actually have an ability and an opportunity to change things, to make things better, and that sort of uh, free will experience and innovation and all these things, that this is an aspect of heaven here on earth. Um, I haven't heard many people take that perspective, and I think it, it's just one that I have to, as a devil's advocate, like throw it in there and just say, hey, let's consider that this might be a heaven realm and, and we have a lot more agency than we think we do here. It's interesting. So I, I, I think we're, I think we're in the human realm, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. I think we are so, the yeah. human realm has this specific characteristic of the possibility of awakening. So in the Shambhala tradition, as I said, the Western eyes, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there's the belief. So um, as it, the 
as the stormic wheel is translated into psychology, into Buddhist psychology, there's this essence of you can move through them each moment. Each moment, are you transitioning from being in the human to jealous God to the God realm? Like we actually have the capacity to move moment to moment. And I, I think what you're saying brings up a really interesting point about us both being people sitting in white privilege in this moment is that to, to claim that it feels heavenly, maybe your lived experience and there's, there's the capacity of, I, I, it, it's, it's a privileged standpoint. It's a, I think it's, it's, it's privilege because I, I feel like my neighbors to my left and my right would totally disagree that it's a hell realm, that it, people who are living in systems of oppression, like there, there, there isn't, I mean, there's always a chance for awakening. You know, that's a belief that we hold. There's always a chance for enlightenment and awakening, but with the current like socio-political, economic, capitalist, patriarchal, ETC, ETC system, it is seemingly impossible. Like we're on stolen land, mended and built by stolen people. I, I personally don't know how to hold in my nervous system how that could be heavenly. And like it, that's why I, I try to take time to sit with suffering. And that doesn't erase my privilege. That doesn't make me a better white supremacist. Like it doesn't make me less of a, you know, a really privileged person. But I don't know. I struggle. I struggle with that a little bit. Yeah. And thank you for, um, you know, speaking to that and saying like that that is a privileged viewpoint. Uh, it definitely is. And it's not the one that I hold most of the time. I, I think I'm more in line with you too, that um, we're living most of our consciousness within the human realm, but that we oscillate at given yeah. times, you know, when I was deep in my addiction, I'm still in the human realm, but I was in the hungry ghost realm and the hell realms at the same time. When I was being yeah. abused, I was in the hell realms for sure. Um, and I think there's a, you know, there, there's some aspect of choice there too, where, mm -hmm. you know, we can choose which of the realms we want our consciousness to reside from or to take action from or to observe from. Um, and, you know, speaking to this gentleman in Nepal that I met, you know, he, he grew up in, in poverty. You know, he said he had a huge family that slept on dirt floors. Um, and he said his family are really happy, happy people, you know, even amidst all their uh, oppression and suffering, um, you know, periods of starvation, children dying in the winters, they still have a choice and, and take that choice to make it as heavenly as possible and to be happy people. So I love what you said, you know, it's, it's this oscillation at any given time. It's not like one lifetime is this, um, but there's also this, this point of choice. And I think some people have more choice than others. Uh, other, you know, other people are restricted from being yeah. able to choose. And that's really, you know, all these things going on come for me, come down to fundamental universal human rights, you know, not one, one group over another or this tribalistic system of like, 
we're better or we're, we're whatever, you know, it, yeah. it comes down to basic human dignity and human rights and rights to explore your mind and to introspect if you need to and not have to worry about, um, you know, somebody, you know, breaking in your house or whatever, whatever it is. You know, so thank you for, for, for bringing that up. Totally. Yeah. And it's, it's heavy stuff and it's really hard stuff. And I, by no means am perfect. Like I, I strive to be in community where I'm called out. Well, actually, let me rephrase that. I strive to be in community where I am called in and places where I'm uh, not being collectively kind can be recognized and I can have the chance to grow, you know? Yeah. Um, so we've covered quite a bit and I, I want to get back on to some, uh, hopefully some happier topics. Um, but <laughs> hey, I, I just... I just want to say that stuff is so important it to is. be able to put out content right now and to not address it would be, would be a sin. So I am, I'm appreciative that listeners can know that even though we are holding, I don't want to say places of power, but like having platforms in the psychedelic community that um, I by no means want to condone bypassing, you know? Absolutely. Um, but I want to get to know more about you. Yeah. On the show. So <clears throat> I have to say, like before we got on the podcast today, I was flipping through your Facebook. Yeah. Just seeing what you've been posting, seeing what you've been up to. And um, you recently uh, announced that you're moving to Oregon. Congratulations. That's going to be awesome. Thank you. Um, Thank you. But as, your, as sort of one of your exit um, phrases that you used, you said, um, Colorado has been one of the wildest six years of my life. Um, and, you know, I grew up in Colorado. And so I think, you know, at, at its core, I feel you there, you know, it's, it's an awesome place to live. Um, so much beauty, so much majesty. Um, mm -hmm. It is a wild psychedelic place to live in general. But I want to hear like, where did that statement come from the wildest six years of your life? What does that mean to Alyssa? It has been, I mean, I moved here on an impulse. I was a, a bright-eyed, blue-haired 18-year-old who thought psychedelics were cool and in the last six years have fallen in love, had my heart broken, faced and slain demons, discovered self-love, made family you know, communities that we share, like I have found family here and people who want to move a collective vision. And I, I really stepped into power here. You know, I stepped into power as somebody who's in the psychedelic community. I stepped into my power as an artist here, Colorado and Boulder specifically. I lived in Boulder for, I've been here five and a half, six years. So like most of it, like four and a half, five years I lived in Boulder. Um, it just, there's, there's a lot of permission. There's a lot of whiteness. Let's be real. Boulder is a very, very white bubble, but there was a lot of permission for me to try on different identities and find my voice as somebody who wants to be, you know, a leader, a facilitator. Um, yeah. I got myself into some really funny situations. I got myself, um, 
I think the coolest thing that I started doing while I was here was um, starting an an artist identity within the immersive art community. So I moved down to Santa Fe last summer and I worked at Meow Wolf for a month and a half. If your listeners aren't familiar, it's a anarchist art collective turned not so anarchist anymore, but they have an exhibit in Santa Fe known as the House of Eternal Return. And I got to offer art therapy workshops, immersive art workshops, and I got to design a workshop that was focused on using an immersive environment, such as an art exhibit, as non-ordinary state, using environment to um, play with different archetypes in the body. Like, I just got to take whatever weird esoteric theory that I thought of and try it out on people and see if it stuck. And though that took place in Santa Fe, there's something about uh, the community here where it is pockets of it. The pockets that I found through Naropa, through the MAPS community, through the psychedelic community, where I could try anything out and people were open. And that that is such a privilege. And I, yeah, I, I've living in New York, being in New York City and Long Island, there's this like conflicting culture of, you know, do what your parents did, be normal, and also be as loud and as gay as you want <laughs> to be really candid. Like there's, um, th- those were the two cultures that really inspired me. Like um, my queerness is a really important part of my identity and helps me, art is such a powerful way that I explore the complexity of gender and identity. And I think if I wasn't able to live in a weird place, I mean, I'm moving to Portland, Oregon, for God's sake, I'm going to an even weirder place. But if I wasn't able to push those limits in this last little bit, I don't know what would have happened. And I mean, it's been fun, but it's also been, my God, it's, it's also been a lot of really tough lessons. Like the mountains and the earth here, like it's dry here. If you want to grow something, the metaphor is true and true. You got to nurture it. You have to water and really tend to your, to your, to your product. And I think living at high altitude is not for me. Like I commend you for being able to do it. I'm an ocean creature, but yeah. Um, it's, it's been a lot of close tending. It's been a lot of, I mean, just being with the earth here. It's, it's taught me a lot of really powerful metaphors and, I've also gotten myself into some fun and some trouble and yeah, all the above. As an athlete, I, I love training at high altitude. Um, mm-hmm. I love um, the feeling that I get when my body is stressed for oxygen, um, mm-hmm. not to the point of suffocation, but like if I, if it's self-imposed, you know, I'm on a big hike or I'm running up a, a, up a mountain or something for training I like that feeling that I get um, where I can take in, it feels like I could take in so much more air up here uh, or that I need to. Uh, When I'm, when I'm down at sea level and I'm running, I feel so sluggish. Like the air just feels heavy and moist. And I'm just like, I I feel like I can't breathe, but um, yeah, I love, I love that. Uh, And I wanted (laughs) to ask you about immersive art um, because that is, that's a fascinating um, sort of, genre of art that that I've been drawn to recently and you speak about uh, non-ordinary states too 
And <clears throat> I just want to touch on that term for a second. And I love how yeah. Stan Graf uses that because for the longest time we've talked about, you know, psychedelic work and other thing as like altered states, right? And yeah, sure, they're altered, but altered from what, right? Like there's some baseline state. Well, mm -hmm. we try and trace it back. There's no baseline mental state. Maybe in Buddhist philosophy, they might say, you know, state of nothingness in your mind, yeah. like, right? But in, in Western um, philosophy, there's no static state of mind uh, necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, well, I don't know where I was going with that for a second. Um, not, or, not ordinary state. Yes, not ordinary state. So, so trying to trace it back, there is no baseline state. And um, I like the term non-ordinary because we can almost all recall for ourselves what an ordinary state is for us, right? And that also illuminates the subjectivity of everyone's experience, right? When my ordinary experience is different from your ordinary experience. But we can both have non-ordinary experiences away from our own ordinary, right? And I'm using quotations. Um, I like to also argue that we're always in altered or non-ordinary states. That we're always fluctuating from one or the other. Like even if I drink... That's it. And, that's the one. Yeah, even if I drink caffeine, I'm in an altered state. If I um, you know, go for a run, I'm in an altered state. If I'm petting my dog, it's I'm in an altered state. It, I'm... I'm in this non-ordinary state, so I love that. Um, but I want to talk about immersive art, and specifically yeah. Meow Wolf, because I've never been to his display, but that's oh, exactly why I, that's why I want to go, because I know that just walking through there, I've seen pictures, and I almost have like altered state experiences or non-ordinary state experiences just from looking at the displays. You know, you go through these tunnels and these mind warps, you, perceptions are being distorted and uh i can just imagine that um you know the artist and please speak to this but as an artist um you're trying to evoke something from the person who's interacting with your art and it's you know whatever comes up for them is is exactly the goal but um you know it seems like meow wolf had a a very clear idea that they wanted to put people, they wanted to have people question who they were, their existence, <laughs> what consciousness was. And I love that. Can you speak to that? Totally. Yeah. So immersion, I mean, it has been the non-drug induced way that as an artist, I have been able to access non-ordinary state. So Mowulf in particular. So I think immersion in art goes from, there's like a spectrum of intentional immersion to unintentional immersion. For example, I think that people like Alex Gray, who is like the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, uh, the community in uh, New York, there's, uh, how to say this, a sense of, it is immersive because there is so much devotion and beauty. There is so much high technical skill um, that it becomes engrossing you know? And Meow Wolf is intentionally immersive in the way that, so for those who haven't been, um, you go to what's an old bowling alley in Santa Fe. The, the outside of the building is still a bowling alley and you go inside and it still has the carpet of a bowling alley. You get a bracelet, you walk through a series of doors um, and you enter another universe. Sorry, the light of the day is shifting on me, but maybe it's good. <laughs> so 
Um, there are documentaries out about this, so I, I want to not ruin too much for folks who haven't been like yourself and also be able to speak to it. But you are just in another universe. Suddenly it's nighttime. Suddenly you're in front of a house and suddenly there's a mailbox with a story and you are following a narrative. So I think um, a flow state, this um, childlike wonder and a flow state comes online of one, so, so flow is an axis. And as an athlete, you probably know this. It's like interest and challenge I don't remember what the other axis is, but it's, it's like um, challenge and skill level. So, um, yep. Yeah. So, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi um, came up with flow or the term anyway, and he found yeah. this perfect balance that pe people will engage uh, flow state when their uh, challenge of whatever task that they're doing just mm -hmm. barely outweighs their current level of skill where they really have to focus on the task. And that's when, that's like this, this band across this, um, this graph that he has. It's like yeah. your optimal zone for flow. Yeah. So I first went to Meow Wolf and I remember just like dropping to my knees of like, I can be a kid and you can run around and there's, there's the tactile level. There's a really well dispersed and hidden story. There's even now an augmented reality app where you can find things in the house and scan it and then get more content. Like for someone who, um, my childhood was pretty disrupted, was pretty disrupted by some warped parenting and um, illness and getting to return to the state of being a child and getting to play and like laugh. Like I, I fell in love, I fell in love from day one and it, you know, things just kept pulling me back there. <laughs> but I think the beautiful thing about immersive art is it holds a lot of the similar potential as an ordinary state to reconnect us with lost parts. You know, like as a kid, were you super exploratory? Did you love following stories? Or were you somebody who just wanted to look at pretty things? And because of the, um, the, the layer of detail and devotion that is poured into the House of Eternal Return, um, I, it, it's just, it's so much inner child work. And my favorite thing working there, so they have on site in the Santa Fe location, what is called the David Luffridge Learning Center. And David was a man um, who was in the original artist collective of Meow Wolf. And he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and struggled a great deal. And um, he ended up dying due to complications with treatment. And it was, his loss was a, it, it just, it rocked the community. So they built a learning center, a like community art space in his honor. So that's where I was doing workshops out of. And we also hosted open art studios. And it became for me, what was psychedelic integration? People are going into this house for hours on end, sometimes actually on drugs, <laughs> and coming out and being able to enter into this like art studio. And you can make art about your experience. There's pre-designed art prompts. My favorite thing that we did was we made recycled art from the creative arts teams. Um, my brilliant collaborator um, partnered with the arts teams at Meow Wolf and we were able to take scraps and make art from our, our pieces of plastic that weren't 
being used for the Las Vegas exhibit or the Denver exhibit. So I just, I loved being able to be resourceful in that way. But anyways, watching people come out of this non-ordinary state and just being like, just stunned, just like glazed over or people coming up to me and being like, so like, if this clue is here and this clue is here, like adults being like, you work here, you know the answers. <laughs> or even even more, more touchingly, as a father, um, something that touched me was getting to see parent and child feel on the same energetic level. You know, getting to be watching parents regress to where they can be kids with their kids or parents can, who have, you know, higher mental acuity um, can figure out parts of the clues that a child can't, but a child's innate wonder picks up something that the adult can't. So it, 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 it was so touching and it brought on family bonding in a way that I don't think I've ever witnessed before. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. Is there a, is there a time limit to go through the Meow Wolf exhibit or can you spend all day in there? Last, so I mean, they are currently closed due to COVID, much like everything else that's cool in this world. But you pretty much get a pass, and now they do timed passes because the exhibit was getting so busy. But once you enter, you can come and go all day. So you could get, you know, a family pass. You know, you and your partner and your child go at 9 a.m. You could go for three hours, go get lunch, and come back and spend the rest of the day which is, um, I've seen lots of people do that. I've seen lots of people, <laughs> seen off the record, I've seen people go in the morning and then come back smelling like weed, being like, all right, I've got this in my ordinary mind, but what is it like when I go in the non-ordinary mind? Yeah, so that was going to be my next question is, um, you know, I'm sure Meow Wolf doesn't pr outwardly promote um, the use of mind-altering substances in their art um, displays, but... Do people um, engage in, in psychedelics and go through? That was my question with oh, the yeah. timing, right? Because if they only oh, yeah. 20 minutes, you got to like make sure that you're peaking like right when you go through. But if it's an all day thing, then you can experience it countless times yeah. in a day. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I just give so much homage to immersive environments like Burning Man and festivals and these small immersive art communities that are public and private that exists all over the country where you can go into it with non-ordinary state or you can let the experience itself be the non-ordinary state but yeah there are definitely I saw this uh, adorable post on reddit that was I did mushrooms at Meow Wolf and the docents the like people working there sat for me all day I can send it over to you. It's it's this like adorable, this person took too high of a dose of mushrooms and are just recounted their experience of what the staff did, which was, um, you know, shout out to the Zendo Project. Those sitters did exactly what the Zendo Project talks about. They sat not guided. They, they were, they let this person have a big experience in their break room for about six hours. So it, it is it easily can become overstimulating, like working, going in that exhibit every day for almost two months. Eventually I was like, oh, flashing lights. Like this is, this is a lot. So I could imagine in medicine space being a bit, a bit much. Yeah. I, um, I had an experience as a teenager working in a haunted house 
Oh. Right. So I'm oh. like, I'm like a part of the immersive experience. And, yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. Same thing. Like breathing in fog machine all day long and strobe lights and loud heavy metal music, which I like, but um, yeah, it gets really loud after a while. Um, it was so much fun giving people an experience of fright. Um, I was this, uh, this, guy in a straight jacket with chains on me and I would jump out of the shower scene with blood all over me. It was intense. Um, we actually had my, my mom came through one time and all, it was me and all my best friends that worked there. Wow. What an experience. What a shared experience. Yeah. And they saw, um, my mom coming in the door and they're like, hold on, like crickets coming through and they all know her. And so as she's going through, like they're all saying personal things to her, like, like her name, using her name to scare her and things like that. And she just said it was, it was amazing. She said it was like a, like a Hellraiser movie made for her. It was intense, but in a good way, like, like she, she likes that stuff. Um, I wanted to, um, you know, we're, we're running out of time and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, You did mention that, uh, you know, at the beginning of your, your real jump into self-exploration and, and uprooting yourself to come to Naropa, that meditation and mushrooms came together for you. Um, I was wondering if, if you feel comfortable, would you mind sharing just about your first ever psilocybin experience, the memories that you had from it? Uh, I know that with the decriminalization that's gone on here in Colorado and Denver, um, you know, we're, we're pushing on the panel to, to get that done more statewide. Uh, but there's yeah. a lot of people out there who are really interested in trying it and who never have. Um, and, you know, they love, I just love hearing these stories anyway. Um, but, you know, people would love to hear uh, what that experience was like for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, luckily, due to statute of limitations, right. I don't mind talking about that. Um, and, of course, as a psychedelic therapist, I don't promote or condone um, recreational use of drugs. But anyways, now that I've said all the things that I think I'm supposed to say, I'll talk about it. Um, Yeah, so it's very funny. A dear friend of mine who lived in New York with me just off the cuff was like, you were depressed, you should try mushrooms. Like it was very straightforward of had recognized it's funny I actually just got this tiny mushroom tattoo the other day so it it felt really sweet um sweet to talk about this um so she recognized that I was struggling and she suggested mushrooms I 17 just gotten out of a breakup being like a moody New Yorker me and my black turtlenecks nobody understands I'm just gonna listen to the Beatles and try mushrooms I'll get out of my head for a night you know and she says whatever you do don't take the whole bag and it's an eighth and I'm in my parents home it's maybe like a Thursday night my parents are sleeping and I'm like cool like I got my pastels I got my sketchbook I have all of Sgt. Pepper's and all of the White Album on vinyl let's um let's give this a go so I chewed a couple of them and was like, maybe I should just take the whole bag. I I don't know. I'm not too sure about these things. Like at the time I was a really heavy cannabis user. So I was like, eh, like I've gotten pretty high on weed. 
I think I can handle it. And just had no idea. Just was so, <laughs> so you. silly. What'd you say? He called to you. The mushrooms said, eat me. They did. They said, all of us, please. <laughs> so I, I ate all of them and I just start coloring. And I still, I wish I had the drawings readily accessible, but like still to this day, they're very special to me. I start drawing and from what I can remember, the first thing that came online was just like a heightened sense of awareness, like a drop of Buddha consciousness of just this ability to like, oh, I have a body. Like just that simple, like, oh, I have never been in this thing before. And I have my entire life been a woman who is full figured. I've always been a bigger woman. And it took me a really long time to identify that I was holding violence towards myself for my size. Like I was not living in a place of body positivity. And I experienced throughout my life abuse because of that. And when all of the mushrooms hit me at once, there was a sense of like, I'm in a body and this is good. And I just remember crying and like being 17. I, I would never do that without a sitter again. Um, I just, it was like, it was like a dropping into home. And from that, it was a, a reflection outwards a reflection outwards in that I was able to see the patterns that I was playing out. I was able to see, um, I had just, like I said, gotten out of a relationship and I saw how cruel I was being to my partner in our ending and how I was dragging things out and was not naming my boundaries and was just making things worse for the two of us, honestly. And I remember like going through my drawer and like pulling out his stuff and just like praying and wishing that he would be well and like, having like a ritual of like yeah and i'm with me it was like really beautiful coming home to the self and like owning that like my body is my body and the more that i'm fighting myself the less creative i could be like if i'm always at war with myself how do i create if all my energy is saying you would be more lovable if you were smaller like you would be more desirable if you were less loud or just the traits that now about now that I'm you know a well-seasoned medicine practitioner and I've done a lot of introspection the parts of me that are like quirky and make me me and actually make me I don't know my divine whatever slice of the divine that I am um so I listen to all Sergeant Peppers which is so cliche and god I remember I, I needed another nervous system so I remember going into my parents bedroom high on my shoes and going to get my dog and like their room just stretching out me being like I'm gonna wake my parents up and just like grabbing this very large wiener dog and just like shuffling him away like really high on mushrooms thinking that was what I needed to do in that moment and I did honestly and he hung out with me for a good bit and I could see that he's like looking at me like dude what did you do so I'm like I think I broke my brain dude like my dog then became my 
my my buddy in that adventure but like I woke up the next morning and thought like what the fuck would I have done if my parents woke up like it it just it was hysterical to me but in essence I think that my first experience with psilocybin it I remember waking up and not feeling depressed and not feeling violent towards myself and being able to look in the mirror and being like hi cutie what's up like actually meeting myself in a really new way and it didn't dissolve it completely but I was able to experience myself outside of it and then I looked up mushroom suppression that next day I remember I went to the art supply store and I had gotten new art supplies because I had been so creatively stuck I remember buying watercolors and going and being like, okay, you know, people must use these for depression. Like, has anybody ever thought that mushrooms are good for depression? Like me at 17 and I don't know, the sometime in the 2000s, um, maybe the 2010s, I'm only 24. But yeah, it, it really, it, that was when it that was the initiation it was just this like you're in your body now welcome like this is what you're supposed to do and yeah I think I, I started describing that experience in the beginning of the podcast and it's interesting to come back to it at the end um, it just everything from there I learned about maps and I was like oh Naropa even though they offer mindfulness they offer cover what is called transpersonal psychology and it, it just, everything just, there was an MDMA study in Boulder there. I could learn about psychedelics at Naropa. Like it just, everything effortlessly. I had no idea that psychedelics and meditation could be linked together at that age, but they were just things I was passionate about, you know? That's so beautiful. So, Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um. And I love that you went and got your wiener dog. Um, I oh. said, you said, you said, I would never do that without a sitter again. I'm telling you, you had a sitter there. Your wiener dog was my your buddy. sitter. He was my buddy. You know, I can't tell you how many times my pets have been some of the best energetic, you know, resources, wellsprings for me in difficult, yeah. challenging mindsets. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. He... He's a, he's a trooper. I wish that I could pull up a photo of him now. He is like the chunkiest little monkey and is just down to be your buddy. Like he's pretty protective, but in that moment he was, I remember him giving me the side eye of like, you're crazy, but I'm here with you. And that was exactly what I needed. But yeah, I think it was, it just experiencing myself outside of depression. I think that is why I am so vocal about psychedelics and healing and that's why I got trained as a ketamine therapist that's why I am so devoted to this work because it that sort of insight to get to in traditional therapy is really hard it's a lot of work and it's not I don't think that psychedelics are a panacea and I don't think that they're for everybody I think that there are some people who um you know, I, I don't think that difficult experiences are inherently bad. It's a lineage that I believe, but I also think that they're not for 
certain diagnostic criterion, like you may actually be worse off with psychedelics, but I will spend the rest of my life just foraging ground and really wanting to create space for people to heal in that way because it, the core parts of my personality changed that day and yeah I, I've never looked back and I mean each medicine that I engage with teaches me something new or connects me to a new part like mushrooms really put me in my body and mescaline has taught me my heart and five meal has taught me that like I have the potential to be a part of everything and I'm also nothing in the humblest of ways and I know we're we're at time here, but something I'm really passionate about is being a, a stepping stone, you know, for people who are interested in this work. I'm 24. I like normally I'm super shy about admitting my age, but I got on this path and it, I knew it was right for me. And it for folks who feel that same drive, I want them to know that this is a career that you get to have in your lifetime. If this is work you want to do, you are never too old. You are never too, I mean, maybe too young, definitely. But brains need to develop. <laughs> but there's such possibility. And, um, you know, organizations that, like, we're both involved in, Prati, the Psychedelic Research and Training Institute, are making such leaps and bounds in creating accessibility for people to become psychedelic therapists. And research is so plentiful. So I love being able to support people in figuring out what avenue of psychedelic work is right for them or you know just getting to getting to realize that this is something we get to do like it feels like that is the the point of the path that I'm on that I am a seasoned I'm not the beginner though I, I hold a beginner's mind and I always try to be fresh and not curmudgeon and I know everything and the party was better last year type of person but people deserve to know that this is a path that we get to choose above ground like blessed be the lineage holders that came before us that living in a city I don't know if you could hear the bass moving by my house um, people you know like the Shulgins like Myron Stolaroff and Leo Zeff like people that work tirelessly underground like we are giants on the shoulders of giants on the shoulders of giants and like I have shoulders. I like, I hope to be able to create space for someone to stand on them someday. So awesome. this is a path, this is a path people get to choose and I'm happy to support on it. Yeah. Um, last question. Um, so you imagine that, you know, there's seven, eight billion people on the planet, right? Um, we all have one puzzle piece to contribute to this giant collective puzzle. Um, and once we all put our piece to the puzzle, we can finally be able to see the true message emerge. But with just our little piece, uh, we can't always see the big picture. And that's really a, a big part of what this podcast is, is a platform for those pieces to finally come together um, and maybe start to emerge some larger picture. So in closing, um, Alyssa, what is, what is your piece of the puzzle? What is something that you can tell the audience out there from your vast life experiences, uh, a little piece of wisdom, a little nugget of truth for us all to hold on to and to integrate um, so we can start to see that larger picture emerge? 
What a beautiful question. Thank you so much for that opportunity to share that. You know, for me, I think that my puzzle piece is helping people witness their multidimensional nature through the creative process. My whole mission in the psychedelic world truly is that our our psyche is so vast, you know, moving through our, our conscious, our collective unconscious, the archetypal realms, that if non-ordinary state shows us new parts of our landscape, that creativity, art making, no matter if you're trained or simply are putting marks on paper, that you have the capacity to, to know yourself greater. And I think that might be a whole nother podcast to actually touch into, but that creativity isn't just reserved for folks who identify as artists, but that the creative process can be a beautiful way to regulate. You know, I, like I said, I just said, I have so much to say about that, but um, intimacy with the self is always so available. And I think that my, we're always telling the same monologue over and over again. And my constant monologue is that creativity is the most intimate way you can be with yourself. And it holds creativity, art making can hold complexity. It can hold oppositional forces. It can hold content that we're not even ready to look at yet. But I, I always just want to encourage people to try art making or to reconnect with it. It's, yeah, that, yeah, creativity is a gift. Um, I know that my mind sometimes can't hold paradox very constructively, but creative expression and artwork can certainly uh, hold that space for paradox. Um, and it's okay. I love that. Thank you so much. This is such a privilege. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was amazing. And I hope to have you on in the future, too, to talk more about the things that you normally talk about, art and things like that. We didn't even, we didn't even scratch the surface. <laughs> this was refreshing. This was so refreshing because it's like, Buddhism feels like my, that's, the, that's my personal S self. My capital S self is what I put out to the world. But to get to be a little more candid and authentic, it, it feels really awesome. So I'm just so appreciative. Sure. And to all you listeners out there, um, heed these words of advice and uh, try and integrate them into your own experience. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for being on the show today. It was such a pleasure to have you here, uh, even though it was just through Zoom. <laughs> I wish you the best up in Oregon uh, in your future endeavors. You're doing a lot of great work. For all you listeners out there who might want to reach out to Alyssa, check her out at psychedelicarttherapy at gmail.com. That's her email. Uh, reach out to her there. Or you can reach out to us at the show, and I can help connect you that way. Um, Otherwise, I hope you guys are having a great day. I hope this made your day a little bit better and helped you smile and uh, reflect on yourself a little bit. So we're not looking for perfection in our growth each day. We shouldn't be. We're going to be 
highly disappointed if we're looking for perfection um, because it is so elusive. So instead, let's look to improve ourselves by 1% every day. And if that's the case, if we could be successful at improving ourselves in one area of our life by 1% each day, then, uh, you know, that's a lot of percentages um, each year and then it adds up. So 1% each day should be our goal, not perfection. Until next time, guys, this has been Shane Lamaster with Conversations with the Mind. Thanks for joining us. Go check out our YouTube page. Please like and share and donate if you find value. Peace. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen OPS.com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.